welcome to Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode number 79, number 79er. So, you know, here we are, just got some, it's been an interesting uh, few days since the last podcast. Uh, breaking news right now is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has got a horrible, horrible reputation for being an uber-liberal court, but through the, the process over the years, I've had a few conservative judges, constitutionalist judges added. Um, they just voted uh, basically three to, or I'm sorry, two to one, a three-judge panel, to throw out California's magazine limit ban. Magazine ban. High-capacity magazine ban. It's now gone. Okay. Now, of course, this will be appealed, and they may get a stay, which means you can't. if you're in California, you can't go buy any. But this is really, really good news. It is not... All A lot of these gun laws are not constitutional, and that's how they have to be fought, on constitutional grounds. So this is really very, very good news, and it's just breaking, and we'll see where it goes. Um, be prepared. Now we have a gun shortage, an ammunition shortage... Uh, if California is allowed to start buying up, there'll be a magazine shortage. So uh, I would put your orders in right now if you're buying some. Because uh, they'll basically, all these places that we normally shop from will get sold out of magazines also. Uh, I'm very surprised at that. I'm actually very surprised. Usually when the, you know, gun laws are challenged in court, it usually usually doesn't go very far. But, you know, this is a step in the right direction, you know. Uh, and I'm hoping that the election this fall will be a step in the right direction too. nail some some of these uh, people and get them out of the government. They're children. They have absolute children. And speaking of children, Joe Biden made his vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris. And I know that there, there was a big to do about is it Kamala or Kamala? Okay, Kamala Harris, that's your name. That's that's who you are. Um, you know, that it, I had suspected that uh, Biden would pick Susan Rice, who was a much better pick. Number one, she's much more articulate. She's much more measured. Now, she's a no-integrity liar, as we found out, and a, and a complete party apparatchik, you know, a complete party stooge, stooge and mouthpiece. But she's a lot more articulate than Harris. Harris comes across as kind of this... I don't know, mercurial, goofy girl type deal. Um, you know, she's she doesn't play well. And uh, I think that the left must be uber, uber disappointed. Not that they were all that thrilled with Biden anyway. And really, who, who really cares about the vice president? But uh, definitely Warren or even Sanders would have been a much better pick. And I think regionally, you know... Unfortunately, Biden's going to win California. It's not even in play. So, I mean, somebody like, you know, that old, boring old Klobuchar would have been regionally probably a smarter choice. Um, Harris does nothing but help him, and frankly, she's embarrassed him so far. And in the, in the I told you so segment, you know, you have to look at what's the first thing, after he announces Harris, what's the first thing Biden calls for a national, oh God, what is it? Mask order, I guess, where everybody has to wear a mask. 
every single person has got to wear a mask for the next four months and until the end of the year. In Kansas City, the, 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 idiot, the idiot mayor has already tried to extend this to the end of the year. Um, you know, they'll put you in a mask the rest of your life. You know, and I, I mean, I hate to say that, but somehow, somehow this has become some power trip for these leftist politicians where they get their jollies out of making you wear a, um, making you wear a, a mask. And, um, you know, as I said the last podcast, don't think this is ever going away with COVID. Every flu season, they'll say, you know, we learned during the COVID pandemic that wearing a mask stops the spread of all this. They're going to have mask mandates. You know, it'll be forever if we let them. So that's one reason to go vote some of these jerks out of office or you'll be wearing a mask the rest of your life because they want you to, not because it does anything. But getting back to Harris, you know, Harris is a a party climber. She, <laughs> her, her past, her sordid past will tell you that she has drawn close to influential people and, uh, you know, it worked her way up the party apparatus, up the party ladder. And I'm not surprised. I, I also think that, you know, the, the Democratic Party really can't stomach Harris. I mean, she's, she is, there's just nothing there. So I think, you know, they kind of know this is a throwaway ticket for this election. And they can say, hey, you know, look how, look how cool we are. We've, we got this black woman. Although she's now kind of running as an African-American, she ran for the Senate as an Indian-American. So, I don't know, it must be nice to just be able to choose whatever group you want to, to, to <laughs> identity, identity politic, from the identity politic menu that they have. You can, you can just choose anything. So it's, it's, uh, it's really pretty wild. So... Um, I think I think Harris is a throwaway candidate on a throwaway ticket in a throwaway election. Uh, I just don't see the Democrats winning this, unless there's some chicanery. You know, the I, I even think that ma- their mass voting fraud scheme is now collapsing. Uh, so I don't I don't think that they're doing too well, and I don't believe any of these national polls. If they show Biden ahead, I think that it's obviously a rigged and slanted and uh, poll that's incorrect but we'll see we'll see on election day but i think i think the democrats are in for an, a very unpleasant surprise on election day you know it not too much happening in the media but i will tell you the kind of a media related gun media related thing is a lot of people ask me why i have a bias against optics and against you know kind of battery powered sites and i don't really have a bias against them i i use them for this or for that, and I have a lot of, of you know, I, I like optics. I have a few optics that I put have on some very, very, uh, you know, high-use rifles that I have. Um, but, to, like today, today I went out to the range and whipped out my AR-15 that I'm going to use in a competition tomorrow, and... Uh, Lo and behold, the optic did not work because the batteries were gone. And there's no real, like, low battery sensor on this thing. It's an EOTech, and it just 
hey, when the batteries are gone, they're gone. And I use, like, the best batteries I can buy, the Goofy, Lithium, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Supposedly, they're a lot better. As far as I can tell, they are better. They last, they have a larger, a longer-lasting life. So, um, you know, and, and you always have to carry extras with you. And so what I did was I used this as an opportunity to pop up. I keep the, you know, the Magpul pop-up rear sight. And so when my, if my optic goes out for whatever reason, I pop up that sight and just keep going. And, uh, you know, that's a really good, that's a really good little attribute. But it also tells you that when you're looking at some of these gamer guns, like the What Would Stoner Do 2020, that's not going to have any iron sights on it. Because in their mind, optical sights are advanced, durable, battery life long enough, all those good things, so that you don't need iron sights. What that tells me is they're not using them in the real world. You know, if you're a gamer, um, yeah, you can you can basically put new batteries in every week or whatever it is, right before a big match or something, and the thing's going to work and go through the match. Uh, people who work in an operationalized environment, uh, they may have the chance to do that, but, you know, you, you just can't risk... Um, these things going down and not having some sort of a backup. It's just too critical. Any system can fail. And if, you know, that's why we carry a pistol and a rifle. Um, if your rifle fails and you can't get it back in order with, with very quick remedial action, you may have to transition to a pistol. Same thing, if your optic goes down and you have no backup iron sights, <laughs> you better be good at guesstimating where the bullet goes because you're just going to be you know, launching lead without any any kind of aiming device. So that's one of the reasons I don't like them. The other thing is, is that, you know, depending on the environment you're in, do you have time to turn these things on? And, um, you know, ideally they would be on all the time and then you bring it up. If you're going on a raid, obviously you turn it on ahead of time and go. But if you're in some long-term environment where, you know, maybe you can't have the thing on all the time, there is a price and a penalty, time penalty to be paid for having to put this, turn this thing on. And uh, some are better at it than others. And so I leave it to people what they want to do individually. But, um, you know, that's, there's a drawback to sites. Uh, the, on the good side, they seem to hold their zero very, very well. Even if they're dismounted and put back on, they seem to come in. Uh, even the inexpensive ones seem to basically kind of return to zero or close to it. They do offer, you know, the advantage of a single sight plane, you know, so you just bring it up on target and there it is. And the higher quality ones definitely, uh, you know, have, have the advantageous um, attributes of a very high manufactured, very, very high quality, um, well manufactured item. So, you know, they don't, they don't pop off. They don't, they don't have little plastic pieces that, that um, get get dogged out and everything else. So it's a very very interesting thing that uh, you know. Frankly, I was I was just sitting there going, I should just take an A1, you know, a Colt SP1 clone, and run this course tomorrow, and I don't even have to worry about I don't even have to worry about sights. I just use iron sights. So I I will go with my other with my first plan, but. You know, I, I'm really thinking that, you know, the iron sight revolution, when it comes to simplicity, uh, that's that's a great thing. And uh, 
I can't overemphasize that too much. This is just another example of why iron sights are a very, very good idea. And the iron sights that are on a, a Colt SB-1 type rifle or M16A1, AR-15 type rifle, you know, the carry handle, the whole thing. You know, the, the, the factory sights that come on that are very, very good and do not go out of adjustment. They just don't all of a sudden start hitting differently. Um, once you dial those things in, uh, the mechanism that keeps them in, you know, the front sight and the rear sight, uh, basically lock them in and they are good to go. So they're, they're a very, very practical, very handy. Which, and this is why most places in the world you still see iron sights. You don't see a lot of optical sights except in special mission, special operations type units. I think um, one of the things that did surprise me, I think the Polish army has adopted the EOTech. How widely it's distributed, I don't know. I would assume, just fiscal responsibility being what it is, that that is only being used by their more elite troops and the guys who are, you know, doing the logistics and all the rest of that stuff. Those guys are, are probably using an iron sight version of the rifle because they're not out there primarily engaging people. They're, they're doing something else. So I would assume that it's not every rifle in the Polish army has one of those, that it's uh, just select units have, have got that. And part of that is expense, too. I mean, uh, when you start adding, you know, when the ability of, of really good firearms to become money pits is, is just out there. There is a tremendous amount of, um, of expense involved in outfitting, you know, some of these units. I mean, when you're talking about a $400 site, I realize governments pay a lot less, but when you're talking about that times 10,000, you're talking some significant money. And um, so it's, it's a very, very, you know, expensive endeavor to outfit these rifles with all the latest gizmos and gadgets uh, when they come with perfectly serviceable iron sights. You know, that's just the way it is. And, um, you know, I would, be, I would be very, very loath to put all of my eggs in one basket if I were in a position to choose something for an army or recommend something. Um, I, would, I would recommend that, you know, these are nice add-ons to have. And I come from an era where, hey, you were high speed if you type, if, if you taped, not typed, taped, if you taped a mini mag light on on your M16 handguard, you know, you would you were high speed. You know that was that was considered the way to get a weapon light, and you know the round handguards of the A2. You know you could kind of do that. I mean, it, it wasn't going to last very long, but it might last long enough to for what you need. So you know, there's there's a lot of uh, kind of low cost, you know, hundred a, a roll of hundred mile an hour tape. And some imagination can can get you some capability. Maybe not maybe not the prettiest or the most long lasting, but it might be just enough to get you get you by what you need to get by. So, uh, you know that's it's very expensive. It's why why you know when you look at a lot of things that were available and and you talk about uh, the the forgotten weapons, the Armson OEG and the Colt three and four power, you know scopes that fit on ARs and few of these other things, they go back to the 70s, and um, I can tell you it was just cost. I mean, the U.S. government made a decision that 
the iron sights on the M16A1 were good to go, and that's what people were going to use. Um, I know that some people think that the military had stashes of those Colt three-power scopes before the ACOG, but they did not. They, they were not. Now, I'm not an expert on everything that they may have had in whatever room everywhere, but I saw enough of it. I never saw one of those scopes. And the fact that I know I'm right is, is borne out by the fact that none of them were ever sold surplus. There aren't surplus Colt three-power scopes out there, U.S. property marked or U.S. marked or anything else. Now, did they probably buy some to evaluate? Were probably some done on a local purchase for some special mission unit? I, I wouldn't doubt that. I wouldn't doubt that in the slightest. But I would also say that, that um, you know, they weren't prolific at all, and they were very, very much an anomaly. And I'm not even sure that I've ever seen a national stock number for one of those scopes. So, you know, those types of things just, they were cool, and they were useful in their time, but they still um, were very expensive, and, you know, the iron sight still rules the day, you know. But it's very interesting. I was taking, um, I, I'm basically setting up a kind of a DMR thing to add on to one of our matches. It's not very high speed. But some challenging targets at 200, 200 yards, and I've got two targets that are very, very challenging. And uh, so I said, look, if I can't shoot this with the Colt type, and mine's a Chinese made, three power AR handle scope. That's got to be the baseline. That That's kind of the baseline. And I, I will say that, you know, with, with your naked eye seeing these very challenging targets, you kind of see them as a blob, and you could you could engage them. But just even that kind of primitive three-power scope is a big help in, uh, uh, you know, shoot, identifying the target and hitting it. Uh, it's not a great scope, and... None of them are very good. I've seen some originals. I've never actually shot a rifle with one of the originals on it, but I've used the copies. And the copies are, are just as... I can't tell the difference. So I, I look at those, and they are a great aid towards, you know, you get just a little... It helps you see the target better. Doesn't make the gun any more accurate. Doesn't have any other magic but it helps you see the target better, which is really the core of what a good optic should do. And while we're on the weird scope combinations, I did see the nine hole reviews, um, did one with the uh, RPG-7 sight mounted on an AK-74 clone. It was actually very interesting. Uh, th this all goes back to a picture from Afghanistan where I don't know if it's a Spetsnaz or, or one of the regular soldiers. You see this in the picture. You see the RPG sight directly mounted on an AK-74. So I think everybody's kind of wondering what would be the practical advantage. Why would you do that? I, I think the there's probably two answers. One is it's probably done for long-range shooting. Because in, in places like Afghanistan, you can get longer range shots that, you know, the regular iron sights on an AK really won't help you very much with. So I think it's probably done for that reason. And I think the other reason is it, it was probably something available 
I don't know that anything written or any kind of a technique or procedure has ever been recorded to do that. Could have been something that somebody just did because it fit, and he, then he was able to use it, uh, zero it, and use it uh, to fire at longer range. That's my suspicion. It's almost like the guys who, you know, you see occasionally a picture of a World War II picture of a guy with two grease gun magazines taped together, you know, so you can just take it out, flip it over, and push it in. You know, never an official, um, never an official training deal or, or recommendation, never an official technique to use, but it was something that kind of done in the field to increase firepower by somebody who's who is probably aware that hey, this isn't optimal, but but it's better than nothing, so I'll use it. So I think that's probably where that came from. But it was very interesting uh, uh, to see that. But, uh, you know, again, a lot of times mounting, especially a high optic, the, the cheek weld is just just horrible or non-existent. And, you know, the, the Russians were, were used to that. The uh, PU telescope on the Moisen 9130 Sniper, there's really no um, cheek weld that you get there. You kind of kind of plop your chin on top of the comb of the stock and and fire away so uh very interesting i always like seeing different techniques and understanding why people would do certain things because it always gives you an insight into their thinking and an insight into some of the problems they had um maybe they maybe they their rifles the ak-74 was kind of a shorter range rifle that was in a long range war you know uh i think that's probably a very very um, reasonable thing to investigate of, hey, I got a, I got this great little rifle, but guess what? I'm not fighting in a jungle. I'm not fighting in a forest. Um, I can see 10 miles in every direction. So is that really the best rifle to use, and what can I do to that rifle to help adapt it to this environment? And perhaps something like that RPG scope was an attempt to do that. So that's where, that's where I think all that is. Okay, we can now go to my favorite part of the podcast, which are questions and answers. And actually, I have one three-part gigantic question to start off with. Um, Okay, the first part of this is, this was asked by a friend of mine who I think was watching some other, some YouTube videos, because, you know, top, this is about top fives. So top five always tells me that it's some video because that's always a, a popular construct. So what top five... Oh, okay, here's the... In the era of the Colt Python reintroduction, what top five out-of-production guns should be brought back? So what's something that's out-of-production and should be brought back? And when I think of something out of production, I mean, I mean, long gone. I don't mean like, well, the Winchester should bring back their model 1886, but you can buy a Uberti or a, who's the other one? Chiapa. You can buy an 86, but it's not a Winchester. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's what, what gun is out of production and you cannot buy a new one or a new clone of it. And what is it? And, um, what should be brought back? So in, uh, in the spirit of the Colt Python, I think the gun that should be brought back, and again, they would sell scads of them. It would be back-ordered for months and months and months, just like the Python. But that would be the Colt Diamondback. The Colt Diamondback is a mini Python. 
it's built on the D-frame. It's very, very cool. It's an absolutely beautiful gun. Absolutely beautiful. And um, it came in some very practical packages. Two and a half inches, four inches, and six inches. The six inch ones being rare and even more rare in 22 caliber. Because I think it came in only 38 special and 22. So if they really wanted to do something cool, I would bring it out in 327 Federal. I would have that as an option. And it would be cool if you could get an eight shot one, but I don't think that that's feasible without making it bigger, which then it wouldn't be a Diamondback anymore. But it was a, the Diamondback was a very cool gun, very nice. The styling, very beautiful, very well made, high quality. It really was a great gun, and Colt should bring that back. So the Diamondback would be one to bring back. Okay, number two of five. And by the way, these aren't in any kind of rank order. These are just, these are just the way it kind of came to me when the question was asked. Number two would be a gun which has been brought back time and time again and has failed each time. But I think it's very cool, and I think it really does deserve a place. And that would be the ubiquitous Armalite 180. I've, I've often said on the podcast that, you know, Brownell should bring that back. And the only concession to the modern times I would make is, well, I might make a couple concessions, but the first concession I'd make is it's got to take AR magazines just because that's the way it is. That's just, AR magazines are the way it is. So we can't have separate magazines, or else nobody's going to want to buy it. A lot of people will buy this if they've already got a stash of AR mags. So it's got to be able to take AR mags. And, it, and it's got to be an AR-180 lower receiver, not just some, not that hokey thing they got where they, they plop the upper on top of an AR lower. No, it needs to be its own special lower do, and do what you need to do to it so that it can take AR mags but it needs to be an AR-10 lower um, everybody who's brought that back has basically stopped the other the other thing I would do to it is I would not put a rail on top like the, the Brownells AR-180 upper is um, I would I would have it so that you could put a rail on it Maybe have it already drilled and tapped and ready to go, but I would not have the rail on it. That would be something the owner would do, not me as the factory. I would sell it as retro as possible. But I might also have a third concession, and my third concession would be a 1 in 7 or 1 in 8 twist barrel, just because that way you can use a variety of ammunition. So... And nobody really knows the barrel. I mean, it's, it's unless it's stamped on there, nobody really knows. So that's that's the other thing I would do. All right, that takes care of the AR-180. So there's two on the list, Colt Diamondback, AR-180. Uh, the next one I would bring back is the one that was on Forgotten Weapons that we talked about last time, and that would be the AMT Long Slide... 10 millimeter. They can bring it back in 45 too. Um, and the reason is because it's a law, a genuine long slide. Most long slides you can buy nowadays are six inch 1911s as opposed to the standard five inch. Five inch is a standard model. Then you have six inch. The seven inch models, those are very cool and they are unusual. 
and I like them in stainless steel. I think that's a very practical finish, and I would like to see those come back. I would like to see somebody make that and come back, and it'd be very easy. I mean, Ruger or anybody who makes 1911s could just make one that's an inch longer and in 10 millimeter and, and kind of go from there. Uh, it would be a very useful gun, good gun for hunting. I would also make sure it had a match trigger. It, it, would, it would be a kind of a high-end gun, but a nice gun for hunting, nice gun for just shooting. It would That would be a lot of fun. So I'd like to see the 10 millimeter long slide come back. Uh, the other gun I would like to see come back would be the the AMT TDE Auto Mag. Remember the Auto Mag? Um, a very, very cool gun. I think the last time I saw one in the movies or anyway was they, they had one in the Dirty Harry movie with the one he did with Sandra Locke, you know, about the, the beach town or whatever. Uh, Sudden Impact, I think it was. You saw one in there. But, you know, those were actually very good guns. They were innovative design, very, very ergonomic for the time and everything. Uh, they did have some, you know, they just were so undercapitalized that they couldn't make it. And I think they misjudged the market. It's kind of like a Corvette, you know. Everybody wants one, but does who really has the money for one and who really wants a gun that's, that's that um, impractical in some ways. I mean, you shoot full house loads in it or nothing. And, uh, you know, there's a market. Right now it's being filled by the Desert Eagle, but there might be enough room in that market to bring back the Auto Mag um, as a very, very cool um, retro gun that's powerful and, and a lot of fun to shoot. <clears throat> the last one, the last one is everybody's favorite. And it's been tried a couple times. It's uh, never happened. But I think... A lot of the historical gun people want a semi-automatic, as authentic as possible, STG-44. Uh, there's guys out there making the uh, uh, the FG-42, the German paratroop rifle. There's guys, you know, there's a, whole, a lot of World War II uh, replica firearms out there, or, you know, clone firearms out there. Everything from carbines to Thompsons to BARs. And, and it's about time that, you know, our market, I think we, there's MP40s that are out there, Schmeisers. I think it's about time we had the uh, MP44. Everybody likes it. Everybody thinks it's cool. Um, and it's just a very unusual, very fun gun. Um, I've never actually fired a real one, but I have fired my ATI-22, which has all the controls and things in the same place and is roughly the same weight but just has the little pop of a 22. But the real thing would be a lot of fun. Even semi-automatic would be a lot of fun. So those are the five. Colt Diamondback, AR-180, AMT Longslide, Auto Mag, and the STG-44. Those would be the, those would be the winners. Okay, the second part of this question is pretty interesting. What five guns should they introduce? And frankly, I don't know. There's so much on the market now. I, I don't really, didn't really have any answers for this, and I had to just sit down. I usually don't like to mull over the questions and have a pat answer. But on this one, I had to, I had to really think about it because there's so much of everything out there. What, what is really um, unavailable that has never been on the market before? 
you know, and that's what this is. What five guns should they introduce? Stuff that we, we've talked about the ones to bring back. Now it's the ones that never were. What should they bring to the market new? So I got some, I got some interesting choices here. The first one is a modern top brake revolver, which would probably never happen because top brake, top brake revolvers are just butt ugly. I mean, even the Smith & Wesson number three and, and, and all the rest of it, they are just ugly guns. I mean, they they just don't ha have the appeal that a lot of guns have. Webleys are, you know, they're, they're unique and they're historical and you associate them with a period. But when you actually physically look at them, um, you know, and you put that aside, they, they are... They are ugly compared to a lot of uh, contemporary firearms. You know, you take a, a Smith & Wesson model 1917 and put it next to a Webley, and you'll see what I mean. You'll see what I mean. But a modern top-brake revolver that would eject its shells, like maybe maybe if all the, maybe if all the uh, rounds were in a moon clip that would just go in, you fire them, and then when you break the top open, it automatically pops out, kind of like the way a shotgun does. It automatically kicks that thing out, and you can just toss another one in. That might that might be an advantage for people who live in very restricted areas or areas that uh, um, you know where you can't get magazines or can't get things. Uh, it would just be kind of a moon clip deal, and you could it should be made so you can actually use it without the moon clips in case those aren't around. And if you actually had that in eight shots instead of six, eh, you might you might have something there. You might just be onto something. So that's the one thing I can think of that uh, um, you could bring out. The other thing is uh, now that I participate in a target league, uh, which just just ended here last week, a lightweight and light recoil 22 target quality pistol would be really good. Now Ruger makes some good guns, but I, I'm thinking that for this would be really kind of for a certain a certain market. And that market would be younger shooters or shooters of smaller statue. Female shooters come to mind, especially if they're just starting out in the sport. It's gotta be target quality. It's gotta be lightweight got to be dependable and it's got to be something that is competitive you know so something like that there there just needs to be something like that and think of and, and this actually comes to something else too um you know youth another so that's number one is a top brake revolver number two is a lightweight light recoil tar 22 target pistol number three would be a women's line of hunting rifles and again these would be slightly scaled back not the you know for for years the gun manufacturers made kind of the youth model which kind of fit the the ladies market also but i'm talking something very different than that i'm talking about something that maybe it has the recoil you know the muzzle brakes built on it maybe it's already set up so that uh, with quality mounts so you can mount a quality optic and maybe it's got we, we've done a long come a long way with adjustable stocks and and uh, these types of things with with rifles so you know maybe it's something that's adjustable and can be kind of a little more custom fitted 
just a, a something to fill that niche in the marketplace for, you know, it's not 1940 anymore where most of the hunters were men, not all, but most. So maybe we need something now that is a little more, a little more adaptable to smaller statured or lady shooters. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it's just one of those things. Maybe it's, you know, got a lot of, maybe there's some other advantages or some other features that lady hunters would like that uh, are currently not on guns. And so I think something like that would be um, definitely worthwhile, definitely worth pursuing, because that is a growing, a growing part of the market. And just to say, well, we make these hunting rifles and we just kind of put a stock on them and, you know, one size fits everybody. Uh, that's really not it. We've, we've, we've come a long way towards adjustability and adaptability to, to certain things. So same thing with calibers. A lot of these calibers now are so efficient, starting with something like 6.5 Creedmoor and even going to other 6.5s or 6mm rounds. Um, they offer extremely good accuracy and moderate recoil, which could be managed, again, through, through some some inspired design of these rifles and their their stocks so anyway that's that would be that would be another one uh let's see um this kind of goes back to number two and that would be youth oriented and scaled target rifles we talked about target pistols you know for people who just you know they're not fully grown yet so we need something intermediate that's not just some cheap piece of junk you know we need think of kind of that eighth grader through junior in high school time frame where you know they're still growing and still developing and still but they want to participate in the sport and they should have something that is really kind of a uh, a top rate quality gun in that thing i, I think that uh, you know you can go to anschutz and a few of these places but a lot of these a lot of those guns are very expensive and just not very easy to obtain and the other side of the coin is there's a lot of lot of stuff that's just adult sized. I mean, you know, I was, you know, I was big enough, um, and I was already an adult. So a Kimber Model 82 government sold surplus by the CMP was fine for me, but for some of the other people who were who were in the club I was shooting with, that wasn't a good choice. It was a big, clunky, overly heavy gun that, although it was quite accurate. Um, it was it was just it was just miserable for them to deal with. So, you know, again, lightweight adjustability, adaptability. We've come a long way, and in all these kind of areas. So the design needs to catch up with what the need is. And the last one is falls in <laughs> with the STG forty four, and this has been tried. It's actually been successful, but we need another a reintroduction of the semi-automatic grease gun. There have been a couple of abortive attempts to bring it in, but, you know, for the World War II guys, the grease gun, and even Cold War types and all that, grease gun is iconic. I mean, they were even they were even uh, still hanging around when, when I started active duty. So, uh, the grease gun is a very cool gun, and it needs to be, needs to be brought back as a semi-automatic. And uh, it shouldn't be that expensive, and it shouldn't be that hard, you know. And uh, they're a lot of fun. It, it would be a big nostalgia, you know, a lot of the sh uh, shooting nostalgia, reenactors and all that. There would be a, there would be a nice little market for that. 
Okay, now the last part of this question is what five guns should be trashed? Which is, and I'm not saying that I'm, I want these things to go out of productions or I want the company to, companies to fail or anything. This really comes down to what five types of guns do I have little use for? So this is purely subjective and purely just, you know, just my likes and dislikes. So I would say the first thing are the cheap Derringers. I know there's like Bond Arms and some of these other um, Freedom Arms and some of these guys make really high-end stuff. And I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about there's some <laughs> there's some real pot metal wonders out there. Um, you know, and, and most gun shops don't even handle them. So it's different. Um, but there's some, there's some definitely some real weaklings out there. And, uh, you know, I, I have no use for those. And I think to me those... Those need to go on the the trash heap of history, you know. Um, I don't think that they that they really contribute much. So there we go. The next one are, uh, the, I don't even know what the num name of them are, but it was remember Jennings and Bryco and all those cheap um, kind of semi-automatic pistols, kind of clunky. They were made out of that bronze alloy, you know. Brazilium or whatever, whatever they called that stuff, and um, you know, people would buy them. Just they, they were just like high point. You could even chunk high point in this category too. People just kind of buy them so they have a gun that's that's um, you know, it, it makes them feel good. It's a totem. It's a it's a security blanket, a lucky rabbit's foot, whatever you want to call it. They they buy one of those and then they have it. But you know the the reliability and durability of those are very very questionable so I would say that uh, I don't really care for those I have no use for them and I don't think they do their owners a great service just like the cheap derringers you know um, they don't do their owners a great service I you know here's a here's a uh, here's a comparison I just thought of you know when I saw that the last cheap derringer I saw was for sale I think it was like $125 and it was a two-shot 38 special Frankly, if you like your fingers, I don't see why you would ever shoot that thing. But that's what it was. But I also look at, and you know, not too long ago, you could buy a, you know, surplus trade-in Star BM for 180 bucks. Uh, that's a. Now that might have some finish. You know, it might be look a little ugly on the outside because it got carried around in a holster and everything else. But at least that's a military quality inspected firearm that a gunsmith can fix and you can shoot with with pretty good pretty high confidence so I, I would say that you know for another 60 bucks yeah I just don't I just don't know the economics where I, I've got 125 but I don't have 185 I, I mean I suppose that exists in the world but if my you know if I have to eat uh, eat thin for the next week to raise the 60 bucks that's what I would do because protection is if the protection is that important. So that's what I would think of that. Uh, next, the next one will, will rile some people, but modern single shot rifles and shotguns. And I'm not talking about sharps or trapdoors or Remington rolling box. I'm not talking about those or their reproductions. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about just the, you know, kind of pedestrian guns that were around in the 50s, 60s, and I, I, they're still around. I don't really want to single out any any manufacturers, but I just don't really see much value in a 
in a single shot gun. Um, and I actually have a couple of them. I've got an old twenty two that was a hand me down. It's, it's a one. It's a, a Winchester Model Forty Seven single shot bolt action. And the kick with this is it was made just after World War Two. Actually, kind of cheaply stamped trigger guards, you know, all that. But the deal with it is when you close the bolt, you know, you you open the bolt, put the round in, close the bolt, it automatically engages a safety that you have to then click off before the, the rifle will fire. Now I assume I assume this was seen as a good child safety deal. You know, I that's what I assume it is. Because the rifle is very small. It was it's clearly made for the youth market. And I mean not too many men I know uh, would would really you know, they would just get a magazine fed. I don't know that anybody really wants a single shot twenty two. So I kind of assumed that that was for the, uh, uh, the the starting the beginning youth shooter market, and I think they made a similar model called the sixty seven, and I don't know if it had the automatic safety or not. But um, while I can understand the um, the appeal of a single shot twenty two for for training purposes for a new shooter, uh, I just don't see that they were they they were guns that were quickly outgrown. I had a single shot Ithaca 410. It was, again, a lever action. So it looks kind of like this weird lever action single shot mashup. And, uh, you know, it killed a lot of birds and a lot of game and a lot of squirrels and things. Um, a very useful gun, but hey, it was a single shot and it just doesn't really float my boat. I mean, I would much rather have a repeater. Just That's just me. And so. Uh, and I know there are other other single shots out there that are H and R's made them, even Thompson Center has made them. Just not a single shot guy. So uh, that's that's just me, just not a single shot guy. So to me, that, I see very little use in those. Uh, that the hunting utility and all that is there's no follow up shot. You know, you shoot and then hey, you're you're reloading it. There's no, no ability to make a follow-up shot. So um, outside of just being on a farm or being on a ranch and being a utilitarian, you know, strictly utilitarian gun for some reason, I just don't see much, I don't see any utility there that isn't actually even better served by a repeating gun. Okay, the next number four of guns that I really don't care for um, have you seen these things? They're called chipmunk and cricket. They're kind of they kind of fall under. They're they're kind of like an even smaller version of what I was talking about earlier with the uh, Winchester Model Forty Seven. They're made for like really small children, young children, and it's usually like a single shot twenty two. And I really don't like those. And I mean, it's they're well made and they appear to be very safe. I, I guess my my problem with it is. I think that, you know, you can start children shooting a little too early. I don't really like the ones of, hey, a four-year-old is shooting. And, and, you know, there was that case a few years ago where they had, what was it, an eight- or nine-year-old girl with an, you know, they took her to a place and an instructor with an Uzi, and she starts to fire it, and, and it gets out of control, and he winds up dead, and you know that that stuff is all bad. I mean, sometimes sometimes that I think the proper age for most children 
is that 10 to 12 year old age group and when you can do when you're in there I think they're old enough to understand and they can respond to training a whole lot better than a child that's maybe half that age so I don't like those little tiny guns like that I think I think dads buy those because they want their child to grow up and be an outdoorsman and a gun person but in fact I think they should just wait and save the money wait and buy something they really want a good gun that they really want when they're 10 or 12 years old okay my last one my last one is is kind of a weird category that you, you see you see them occasionally and it's like non-military MBRs and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about things like you know a Fulton Armory M14 or um, you know a DS arms FNFAL those, those are military arms that's a proven standardized adopted by military design I'm talking about you know Caltech makes one what was the other one desert tech MDR is another one they're they're military rifles but they've never been adopted by anyone so their purpose has always been always been a little uh, mysterious to me because uh, frankly why would you want one if you can get an AR which is a kind of a proven design and has all kinds of all kinds of R&D put into it and everything else um, that just seems to be a much better way to go than these things that cost three and four times as much and have never been adopted or used operationally by anybody they just sort of exist and I guess they're sort of in the kind of in the gamer world a little bit but uh, I, I don't really care for those I, I they, they they do nothing for me uh, the one that they did on forgotten weapons like the calico nine millimeter I mean I, I kind of look at that and go well, what use is it and it you look at it and you can see it has no real law enforcement or military use even though it is a high capacity nine millimeter carbine it's it's got just these ungainly magazines that are difficult time-consuming I should say maybe not difficult but time-consuming to fill and then you gotta wind them up to put tension on them um, you know I don't know I just don't see those really don't turn me on very much there's no real association with them other than they exist and that they're um, they're out there well another one blast from the past remember Wilkinson arms and there was this guy he he designed a whole several weapons like three or four weapons and he named them after his wife and daughters you know is there something weird there or what it was just you know and and I I just sat there and said you know nobody really nobody really wants to shoot a a nine millimeter pistol carbine that's named after your wife you know the Diana nobody wants that you know people want something like and I thought it was the most brilliant marketing name like Bushmaster yeah I've got a Bushmaster AR 15 a2 that is very cool that is very cool or I have a high standard trophy you know I mean that or high standard Victor Smith & Wesson combat masterpiece those are the kind of weapon names people want, not Diana or Carol or or whatever else. You know, that's just that's just me. That's just the gun market. You know, responding to what it wants, and it's not it's not ladies' names. You know, we didn't we didn't call the P fifty one fighter plane, you know, the Diana or 
or anything like that. We called it the Mustang because that was a name that, you know, kind of inspired some confidence and uh, some excitement. Um, you know, would you want to, nobody would want a gun named the Kevin, that's for sure. <laughs> nobody would want it. <laughs> so, so there you go. I'm in the same boat. If they named something after me, it, it, the name wouldn't sell a single gun. Well, it would say they, they'd be able to sell one to me, maybe, but they wouldn't sell it to anybody else, that's for sure. So military-style weapons that have never been adopted in any way, shape, or form, yeah, I haven't got really much use for that. They don't really excite me very much. They're just sort of things that exist there. They may be good ideas, maybe bad ideas. I think it's the Keltec one that kind of ejects the empties forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You know, the other side of the coin, the other side of the coin that I just thought of with those is, you know, they have a very unfamiliar manual of arms. Like, if you've ever were in the U.S. military, you know how to load, unload, and clear a stoppage in an M16. You just know. And that translates directly to an AR-15, even though the AR-15 is not select fire. And it even transfers to even the retro models and the prototype model that Brownells makes of the AR-15. They all work fundamentally the same. But you start getting some of these weird designs out there, and especially bullpups, where clearing a stoppage can really be a problem. So why would anybody want a gun that is that is just unfamiliar, that has no... no um, basis in any of their experience. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some people just like the weird and unusual. But I don't. Okay. Now for our last question. It's kind of an interesting one. It's hard. At first I thought I, I would just pop off the answer very quickly, but I actually I have to think about this one a little bit. What is the one trait of a firearm you value the most? And as a follow-up clarification, if you could only choose a firearm that had one outstanding trait, what would that trait be? And I have to think about that. But I think the... And I, I thought, well, is it power? Is it capacity? Is it sights? Is it trigger? What is it? What, what is it that I really value the most? And um, I had to think about it, and the one trait that's universal, because you really, if you're target shooting, you really want a great trigger. That's, that's very, very important to you. And if you're shooting precision, you need great sights or great scopes. Um, if you're hunting, you need power. But what is the one universal, what would be a universal trait? And I thought the universal trait would be reliability because if you don't have reliability you don't really have anything so my thought is reliability is the trait that I would go for and in any firearm I have if it's not reliable it's it's not very useful and um, I can't think of any really any purpose that an unreliable or a marginally reliable firearm would be would be useful for. And maybe that comes from a military background where, you know, reliable equipment is very highly valued. 
or maybe it comes from a background where you know durability and reliability kind of are hand in hand so maybe that's maybe that's my my prejudice in this is that uh, I do that but I just don't see I just don't see a gun for any purpose that if it's not reliable and durable uh, what what possible use is it so that would be the one I would choose now for different purposes you would you would say in addition to reliability I'm hunting Cape Buffalo so I need power or I'm I'm out hunting Isis so I need capacity or I'm out I'm out shooting targets so I need precision you know it's it's very interesting it's very interesting what traits are actually the most valuable really kind of depends on the the purpose of the firearm but it also I don't think anything I don't think anything uh, knocks out reliability and durability so that's it well that's it for another edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is if you have a question you can leave it on podbean which is our carrier and you can also email it to me at kbmakel at aol.com that is kbmakel at aol.com And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.